for exclusive podcasts and more. Sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Christina Reese from Camp Kisner, Okinawa, Japan. Christina will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Samantha Thompson. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Law & Order Season 14, Episode 3, Patient Zero. How do you plead? My client pleads not guilty. Your Honor, the people seek remand. Dr. Blanchard intentionally infected his former lover with the SARS virus. Allegedly. She went on to infect 11 other people. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and the Undisclosed Addendum podcast, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. You always come home to me, right, Kevin? I always. Always come home to you. <laughs> <laughs> and rounding out our panel is our special guest, from the spooky adventures of Alec and Sam, it's Samantha Thompson. Hi, Samantha. Hey. So you work in law enforcement. I do. You enjoy scary stories. Love scary stories. What's the ideal law and order crossover ghost story? Oh, my gosh. You know, it would be really interesting to see a Law & Order like Ghost Adventures crossover where Zach Baggins <laughs> just goes in there to see some haunted location. And then Briscoe would drop a one-liner. It would have been great. Zach Baggins. Uh, that, that guy. He's the pain <laughs> Lindsay of reality TV. He's incredible. Or it could be an SVU. And Amanda says to the ghost... It's not your fault. <laughs> totally, totally. Can you imagine Ice T with the ghost to be like, nah? Oh, uh, hell no. I'm no, but here. he would know where it was from immediately, though. That's exactly. Right, he would. Based on whatever he iconography would. it had on its ghost shirt. There was a great scene, and we talked about it in a past episode, where Munch and Finn were chasing a murder suspect on Coney Island, and the suspect got on the haunted house ride. Oh, and yeah. And to chase them... They also got on the haunted house ride <laughs> to ride the little cart that is traveling exactly the same speed as the guy. And, and then all these spooky things come out. And I don't know. That was the scariest thing we've seen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sam, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Oh, see, I had to think about this one long and hard, but I'm a, a kind of a, a traditionalist. It's a Briscoe Logan. Mm, nice. Yes. It's a good choice. Absolutely a great choice. I yeah. mean, it's no Briscoe and Green, but it's all right. That's true. I wonder That's what true. Briscoe's ghost would be like. <laughs> Snarky. Right? Snarky, yeah. Totally. <laughs> My wife always said this would happen. <laughs> 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 and who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. McCoy and Carmichael. Oh, right. Love them. They're my favorite, too. Oh, There's fantastic. a nice sass. I love her. Connection. I love her. I think Angie Harmon's having a moment on our podcast because it seems every week. I mean, she's Angie Harmon. She deserves the moment. <laughs> right. She deserves it. She's getting that Rizal and Oli's. Rizal and Oli's bump. <laughs> God damn it. 
<laughs> you never watched a minute of that oh, show. <laughs> well, they had plenty of promos. <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order, Season 14, Episode 3, Patient Zero. Well, the advantage to power walking in Manhattan is you can be as catty as you want about your friends and get great views of carjackings. <laughs> I took one to the chest. Emmy says it was up close and personal. Drove up the block like a bat out of H-E double hockey sticks. What precinct are you from? Sesame Street? She still got her watch and her wedding ring. We got a couple of witnesses over there say it looked like a carjacking. The victim in this case is Anna Hopkins. They chase down some guys who chop up cars and find Anna's Escalade. That leads them to Lamont Tyler. And even his lawyer says, you're screwed, buddy. Lamont confesses to the killing, and so ends another nine-minute episode of Law & Order. <laughs> <laughs> but wait! In the back of Anna's car was a container filled with the SARS virus. She worked at a lab doing research on the virus. Her snotty boss, Dr. Charles Blanchard, says they just got samples from China. And what's this? Anna was born in Saudi Arabia. What are you implying, detective? <laughs> we know. <laughs> well, that's when a SARS outbreak happens. With 11 people in the hospital, they identify their patient zero as Janine Wilson, a journalist who just returned from the SARS-ridden cesspool of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> but the Canadian strain comes from Singapore, and this strain came from Hong Kong. Janine admits... She had just ended her affair with lab director Charles Blanchard, and in addition to giving her the hot beef injection, he was also giving her a B12 injection. Nice. Laced <laughs> with SARS. I heard what you did there. You saw the injection thing? Ew. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, we've seen SVU detectives. This is the first time we see an SUV detective. <laughs> Very funny. We're looking for a young black runner who jacked a 2002 blue Escalade this morning. That wouldn't be my guys. What, you guys don't steal American? You said he's a black runner? Jerome Avenue is strictly Italian. Oh, and all this time I thought the 14th Amendment outlawed separate but equal car theft rings. Not in the Bronx, it don't. <laughs> Very funny. In the criminal justice system, automotive offenses are considered especially heinous. Especially, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's apparently the guy known around town as uh, the chop shop Oh, is that wizard? that Kachiko guy or Kachipa, the guy that everybody's amazed that Van Buren knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, what do you mean? She reads the weeklies. He's the, he's the, uh, he's the auto theft profaci. Oh, <laughs> profaci. I was excited to learn that there's some sort of like magazine apparently about cops that distributed distributed to cops yeah is this true sam uh well there are a few cop magazines yeah indeed <laughs> i think it was a cover story on this dude <laughs> i go after escalates it's a possibility i mean in that area for sure <laughs> <laughs> well um lamont is really sticking to his story here. <laughs> oh hell no not me i was at a bar a bar just for chuckles which one how am I supposed to remember that? Even if he could remember Lenny, he'd have to explain away his fingerprints on the victim's vehicle. It must be a mistake. Oh, this is good, the way you're working with us. See, now what about that 38 we found at your crib? Was that a mistake, too? Now you got it. <laughs> so someone remind me when he's calling Briscoe B. You better start thinking about folding. That's on you, B. What is he actually calling him? I, I don't know. It's not like gangster. That's G, right? I, I think so. At first I thought, well, maybe he does know his last name. I mean, you know. 
<laughs> he saw it on his badge. Or right? Something. He's like, oh, okay, that's what I call him. That's great. <laughs> and that green comes in. is like, hey, G, hey, B. Yeah. I, I don't Van have- Van Buren, hey, V. Yeah, I wish I had more notes about green in this episode. I only have one. Would you like to read it? Green is gorgeous. <laughs> God damn it, Rebecca. It's okay. My note was Green gets a lot of phone calls in this episode. Hey, Tina, I'm going to have to call you back, okay? Yes, a lot of six-second phone calls yeah. that he then has to spend 15 seconds expositing. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so even the guy's attorney is like, man, you're fucked. <laughs> I got to tell you, Lamont, I don't see a way out of this. I don't see a way out of this. You're done. That lineup did go swimmingly, I have to say. <laughs> so my note that I have on that lineup, though, is he's the only one that has his hands in front of him. Nothing like standing out in a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> blend, man. You're supposed to blend. I really want to talk about the deli guy and the moms and the whole cold oh, yes, open. Can please. we talk about okay. that for a second? Yeah, sure. A, it was a masterclass in some of the worst acting I've ever seen oh on this God. show. I have to get back to the deli. We're expecting a meat delivery. Meat? A woman's just been shot. Hey, I got the license number and I called 911. What'd you do? Take it easy, pal. This is only going to take a minute. Oh, really? I'm, yeah? I'm not alone <laughs> thinking that deli guy, like, he had to have been somebody's, like, brother or cousin, right? Oh, yeah. Like, he could not have actually auditioned for uh-huh. this role. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually cutting meat. They said, oh. You'd be perfect. What are you doing Thursday? <laughs> well, and the fact that let's let's speed walk while we're talking about Chanel sweaters and the fact that Bruce's bank account is stronger than pride and love. <laughs> Chanel, who's she kidding with those hips? The point is, she's getting back with Bruce. No way after that whole thing. Well, forget that. If John forgot my 10th anniversary, I would be out of there before you can say Rotwell Felder. I mean, where's your sense of pride? <laughs> <laughs> it tells you all you need to know. Those right? bitchy hot moms. Yeah. Like, love them. And, and what's up with the like weird aside with the super earnest cop who says H-E double hockey sticks, <laughs> prompting Briscoe to say, what precinct did you come from? <laughs> Sesame Street? <laughs> Such a classic one-liner. <laughs> he must have heard our last podcast and we decided to bleep all the swears. So he... <laughs> So they suddenly, you know, talk to this guy and that guy, and they finally get to this uh, Cadillac Escalade. So the interesting thing that I loved about this fact is that literally they're like, hey, do you hear a lady screaming? Yeah, that would not hold up in court, I'm just saying. (laughs) You guys got a warrant? Hey, you hear that? Yeah, I think I do. Hear what? The sound of a woman calling for help. Ah, oh, this sucks. Female in distress. That's exigent circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they get to the back. The guy pops it open. He goes, we've been trying to unload this car for a while, but nobody wants to touch this box, which Briscoe immediately touches without gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that brings up a good point. That defense attorney kept saying, I don't see a way out of this. I do. <laughs> Throw it out for an illegal search. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at our Hey, It's That Guy. Mm. Hey, it's that guy. Do you know the actor playing Dr. Blanchard? I'm going to go to Rebecca first no. on this one. Is it Ralph Nader? No. Sam, <laughs> <laughs> Sam any guess? No, but he definitely is a Hey, It's That Guy. You've seen him as that British bad guy in almost everything. It's great. Back when I was at Stanford, Harvard offered me twice the salary for half the workload. I'd have been on the first plane east. I was, only not to Cambridge. Hudson doubled Harvard's offer. Why do you suppose that is? I don't know. You're good. That's Daniel Garol or Garol mm. or Jarol. Yeah, clearly you know who yeah, he I is. Know. <laughs> you totally looked that up on Wikipedia. Who are you kidding? Yeah, but no, you've seen him run on the beach a million times in slow motion. 
Oh, was he in uh, Chariots of Fire? Chariots of Fire, really? yes. Was he one of the Americans or one of the Brits? No, he was one of the Brits, Rebecca. Okay, uh, he played Henry Stollard. He was, this is a true story, he was a classmate. Um, this actor was a classmate of Prince Charles hmm. in the drama class wow. at his school in Scotland. Wow, the school that Philip sent him to that he hated that we saw in The Crown? No, I don't know. Samantha, have you been watching The Crown? <laughs> oh, I'm totally caught up. Okay, so I think it's the one sort of in the later years. Mm-hmm. Oh, the school is Gordonston? Mm. Does that make sense to anyone? I don't know. I don't know. Remember how cold and dark it was and everybody made fun of poor Charles? Yes, but Prince Charles seemed to like really like being in the theater. I totally liked being in the theater. I wish that he maybe had become an actor. That would have been interesting. <laughs> A lot of Prince wooden Charles? performance. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine Prince Charles running on the beach and the chariots of fire. <laughs> you know what's funny about, uh, this is like an aside, but I remember- Do you think Prince Charles can run? Of course. This what would he ever have to run they to? They play polo. He's the prince. Do you know how hard that is? Oh. They can literally but do But he's anything. still not running. He's on a horse. <laughs> right, riding the a horse, horse is, is running. Riding a horse is hard. Oh, a lot of exercise. So I just have a question about um, Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Have you seen it recently or did you only see it when you were a little kid and do you remember it as the most boring movie ever made? The, ha- the latter. <laughs> it's actually quite good. I uh-huh. recommend it. I watched it. It was on TV a few weeks ago. I was a total aside. And I turned it on. I was like, oh, this one. I remember this being the most boring movie ever. And then I was like, or maybe I saw it when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out a hey, it's that girl. Okay. Again, uh, we see uh, Christine Hodge. Yes. She was on a previous episode as a uh, kidnapped victim. The fact is. He never goes home with anyone but me. This whole story about some sordid affair is nonsense. Uh, as you remember, she was Elaine. On In this episode, Mrs. Uh, Blanchard, she was best known for head of the class, voted most huggable at Hollywood High, <laughs> an honor which has not held up well. <laughs> and hey, actually, good news, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, she had been diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. In real life? In real life. They oh gave my. her two years to live and she beat it. Good for her. So no ask kidding. Her, she's doing well. That's uh, it's always good to hear. But I want to ask you about Nora, the gossipy lab tech. Do you mm. recognize her, anybody? Oh, gosh. She did look familiar. The man may not always be right, but he is never wrong, if you know what I mean. He's the feudal lord, and we're all his serfs plowing his fields. That's Finnerty Steves. Uh, this is the first of three Law, Law & Order appearances for her. She is playing Beth on Orange is the New Black. Oh, okay. So wow. you remember how like uh, there was a time there where like everybody from The Sopranos was getting side work yes. on Law oh, & yeah. Order? I believe that everybody who is now on uh, Orange is the New Black has been getting some previous work on Law & Order or SVU. I totally wouldn't doubt it. I think Orange is the New Black is the New Black. <laughs> 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 so you brought him up before, so we may as well talk about him. Who's that? The deli manager. Because he there was a Ralph Nader reference in this episode. There oh, was. totally yes. dated this episode too. You seen a blue escalate? Who's asking? Ralph Nader. Yeah. I didn't vote for you. Oh right, there was that election. <laughs> <laughs> he was People the Jill Stein of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so our deli manager, anybody recognize him from anything? Oh God, no. Orange is the New Black. Law <laughs> <laughs> and Order SVU? That's Teddy Koluka. Two years ago, a guy comes into my shop, points a gun, give him whatever he wants. Nothing's worth your life. So you've seen Teddy. He's got recurring roles now on The Blacklist and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Hmm. Oh, so are we to assume he got better? <laughs> <laughs> Five Law and Order appearances. He really has that face. Yes. Where even if 
maybe you don't recognize him, but he looks like he's cut right from Hell's Kitchen and placed <laughs> in the Law and Order episode. I was going to say, he looks like he's cut a lot of ham for ham and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we don't have to do a lot of exposition to build suspicion that this character is a terrorist in the year 2003. Oh my God. By uh, suspicious, you mean Arab. Her father is Saudi, so uh, she must be a terrorist. Your wife was driving around the city with an unauthorized vial of SARS, Mr. Hopkins. Times being what they are, we have to wonder why. Look, Mr. Hopkins, if you know anything about this, you need to tell us now. All right, let me check a Palm Pilot. You know, because I think she's got Osei's home phone number. Hey, stop it! Well, she has a Palm Pilot. That's hella suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, we were about to go to war with Iraq because we thought they had something to do with 9-11. So... I, I, again, I think you just have to drop, even today, I think if you just sort of drop, oh, they're from a certain part of the world, yeah. you immediately get to the, oh, suspicion of, of this. It's a way more suspicious that she works at Hudson. Let's be real. <laughs> oh, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> well, we do have to suspect that doctor of something, because first of all, every doctor in this show is a major dick. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and we have to suspect him of, you know... Criminal actions because he does work at Hudson. Yes. We are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school. Is there anything more terrifying than the prospect of a scary lab working on biological weapons at Hudson University? Could you imagine what could possibly go wrong there? Or do they just need a rapist and a exactly. <laughs> kidnapping? <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, that's a. Somebody that, murdering for tenure? That's just like a Thursday at Hudson <laughs> University. <laughs> It really is. So they go to the isolation unit yes. and... Have to yell through glass. Have to <laughs> What is this about? Anna Hopkins. She was killed in a carjacking. Charles had something to do with it? No, no, but the thing is, Mrs. Hopkins had a vial of the coronavirus in the back of her car. That bastard. What in the world was he thinking? <laughs> it's an amazing piece of high-tech isolation. Literally, like, you don't have to wear a mask or gloves or anything. All you have to do is walk up to this window and scream at the person on the other side. <laughs> well, I think it was actually a screen window. It wasn't actually made of glass. It made it easier. I have another question about Janine. Because yeah. this whole, like, all these throwaway lines in the episode about the doctor, like, running around behind his wife's back with, like, much younger women. I'm like... His wife was pretty freaking young. Like, what are we yeah. talking about? She wasn't exactly a spinster. Younger than him. She was cold, but she wasn't exactly old. Yeah, yeah you know, the biohazard thing, you know, at one point we see Briscoe and Green at the hospital and Briscoe turns to the doctor and is like, well, still, shouldn't we be wearing masks or something? I'm like, shouldn't some more people be on this case other than the two carjacking cops? <laughs> Says the guy who touched the box without gloves. Yeah. <laughs> Touching everything at the hospital. St. Mark's, you mean? He yeah. was patient zero. He was probably patient zero, yeah. <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. The defense is going to argue it wasn't Dr. Blanchard who spread the SARS virus. It had to be Anna. Because she was an Arab or something like that. <laughs> Every day we're told to be wary of biochemical attacks by Arab terrorists. Twelve people were infected with a virus, the source of which was a vial found in the trunk of a car owned by a woman born in Saudi Arabia. Mrs. Hopkins had no connection with any terrorist group. She didn't socialize with Arabs or even worship in a mosque. Point is, there is no evidence whatsoever indicating this was politically motivated. 
allowing the defense to even suggest as much will do nothing but inflame and mislead the jury. <laughs> Snuffleupagus lesbian Serena Sutherland discusses the case with Blanchard's wife, Elaine. She's standing by her man saying they were home together the night he allegedly gave Janine the B12 injection mm. and says, don't believe those slutty ladies who get turned on by intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone at the lab knew about his four-year-long affair with Janine and that he is the father of her son who is still in the hospital. <gasps> still, Mrs. Blanchard is unmoved even after the sick boy dies from SARS. Now on trial for second-degree murder, Blanchard admits cheating but not to infecting Janine. On cross-examination, McCoy works up Mrs. Blanchard's hidden rage over her husband's affairs. She testifies, no, he wasn't with her the night of the injection. Then on a brutal redirect, she admits to the defense she'd lied about, the, lied about that because she was saying, oh, fuck. <laughs> what? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. In the conference room of truth... Uh, she says her double perjury was strategic. <gasps> it's enough to confuse the jury who find Blanchard not guilty and the cold-blooded couple leave the court hand in hand. What exactly was Blanchard on trial for? Second-degree murder. For who? Tanner? Like For the, yes, for the, for the for kid. The, for the kid. It was very confusing. I was like, the, we had a victim at the beginning who's completely forgotten about. No one ever discusses again. <laughs> the poor husband is like... Wait, what? Like, we're not going to do anything about the fact that my wife was, I don't know, murdered? They got a confession. <laughs> yes, I know. But then they're still invoking her alleged terrorism, which is clearly not true, in this trial. For what? I'm like, is he on trial for terrorism? It was very, I found it very confusing. All the legal stuff in this part of this episode was bananas confusing. Sam understood the whole thing. <laughs> Actually, my confusion came in the, the fact, why did we call this patient zero? Because it seemed to have so little to do with that. <laughs> well, Rebecca, I know that you want to make a point about the term patient zero, right? Do I? <laughs> well, Oh, I do. Taylor Quimby, who is the voice of our podcast theme song, completed a podcast called Patient Zero, it's around the medical mysteries of Lyme disease. And Rebecca, you were very impressed about where this term patient zero comes from. Yeah, patient zero is actually uh, came about at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a problematic term because there was this sort of like focus on gay men and patient zero ultimately like sort of had some like weird intersections with homophobia and all that stuff. But the thing that's really interesting is it wasn't actually patient zero. It was patient O. <laughs> the letter O. Yes. As it was sort of outside the, yes. the vector zone or something exactly. like that. Exactly. So it was patient but O. But patient zero sounds way more it, badass. And it's a way better name for a podcast <laughs> or an episode than, you know, doctor from Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a different name for him, actually. I called him Smuggy McSmuggerton. Oh, yeah. I called him Thurston Howell the third because that was how he dressed. <laughs> So a district attorney and rejected hee-haw character, Arthur Branch, <laughs> says Serena ought to interview Blanchard's wife because... I'm thinking this might be better handled woman to woman. And then later McCoy says the same thing to her. Right. Arthur was right. This sort of thing is better handled woman to woman. So, hey, progress? <laughs> oh, I was seething. I was kind of like, I, I'm kind of triggered at this very moment that it has to be woman to woman. Why? You can go talk to her. It's fine. 
<laughs> Maybe Branch is a little afraid of women. They seem, I have to say, when McCoy later says he doesn't want to go talk to her, he seems afraid. He seems oh, either yeah. lazy or afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, Serena goes to see Mrs. Blanchard and spills the tea on her husband's affairs right as the servant is pouring tea. Right. I know this is difficult, Mrs. Blanchard, but where does someone like Janine Wilson fit into the picture? Believe me, I know from experience. A high IQ is an aphrodisiac. I know the mere presence his effect has on women. That woman did not flinch. (laughs) That servant. She either has ice in her veins or she doesn't speak English. She has her headphones in. She wasn't paying attention. (laughs) She's listening to an audio (laughs) book. Yeah, she's uh, she's pouring the tea and she's like, oh, this shit again. I have a question about their conversations with people who work at the hospital, lab techie type people. So we hear from one who's like, nobody would get with Dr. Blanchard. That guy's a dick. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, yeah, but everyone knew he was sleeping with that other person. (laughs) Which is it? Is he a dick that no one will sleep with? Or is he a hound that everybody sleeps with? Eight million people in this city. I mean, you got (laughs) to eventually come down to it, right? So the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> so I've been thinking about the casting of uh, Christine Hodge. Mm. She is 35 mm-hmm. in this episode. He's 20 years older than her. But this character, she doesn't come off necessarily like a gold digger. I think it's surprising that she sticks with him. And I think it is a clever writer's choice as opposed to, you know, having Mrs. Howell there yeah. uh, to have Ginger instead. Yeah. And I think that we got some like alluding to this foreshadowing at the beginning of the episode, right? With the two Upper East Side moms like bitching about how their friend is going to stick with her husband even <gasps> though he's a cheater. Oh my oh. God. You think that was foreshadowing? I got to say, like some real writers in the room that day. <laughs> you know, actually, I think uh, I loved the fact that she just kind of could play that cold, like blank face sort of. Yeah, okay, whatever. I, it's like she is she in it for the money? I don't think she's a gold digger, but at the same time, you're like. I actually have a note at the end of this episode, which was like kind of like, what is my theme of this episode? It was who was smarter, him or her? I actually thought she did it like for the entire right? episode. I did. Every time she came on screen, I'm like, she did it. <laughs> she put the SARS in the B12 shot because she knew her husband was giving his girlfriend these B12 shots. She's the one who did it. I was, I was certain. Because I haven't seen this episode either ever or mm. in a long time. I was certain. I was like, she did it. That is the uh, that is the formula. I was shocked that I was wrong. I'll be well, And how that. many other women was he giving this B12 shot to? <laughs> what a weird sign uh, of affection. Apparently he'd been given is. a lot of women's shots. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that like a weird sign of affection? Hey, hun, I'm going to come over and stick a needle into your arm. <laughs> You're a little run down. Let me help you out. I'm going to feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we, you guys especially, which I love that you guys really embrace the Briscoe one-liners, but Arthur Branch had some turds of wisdom in this show. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of made some notes of that, and I literally put Arthur Branch's turd of wisdom, and it was... In the grand scheme of things, a wife's testimony doesn't amount to a hill of grits. It's not like Terry's wearing an ID card around their necks. On the other hand, we could be putting the cart before the mule. The cart before the mule. Yeah, I think they just want to take, like, regular cliches and make them corn pone for some reason <laughs> more corn pone yeah let's change this up hill of beans no 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 no, no. what else what do they have beans, they have beans. <laughs> it has to be more what arthur branchian what would that be grits perfect because he definitely <laughs> looks like a guy who has grits for breakfast 
we get a quick flash of McCoy's life. Um, remember, when he came on board 10 years earlier, it was implied that McCoy is a ladies' man. Hmm. And Serena asks about his last marriage. Different people expect different things from marriage. And I guess you're an expert on that? Before you go any further, she left me because I spent too many nights like this. So uh, she's got to be thinking, yeah, not worried about sleeping with you. <laughs> not even one bit. You know why? Why? Because she's a lesbian. Is this because I'm a lesbian? Is she? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't Nobody that she knew. was bisexual. She is a lesbian. Done. That's right. <laughs> Rebecca, you thought there was actually confirmation in this episode. I did? Yeah. I wish my dog was as loyal as Elaine Blanchard. She mentioned having a dog. You're like, yep, she's a lesbian. <laughs> No, that was just the rose thinking that's the writers giving us a clue. I wasn't saying the that. The writers did The writers know. also. That was a last minute addition as she's walking out the door for the last time. The writers also in this episode, I mean, these are the writers, right? They also yeah. like interchange the word Arab with Muslim, like, which is not oh, accurate. Yeah. No, Millions of Arabs are not Muslim. Millions of Muslims are not Arab. It's like, true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of vetting going on in these yeah. scripts. <laughs> I think we just wanted to move past that pretty quickly. <laughs> Let's get past the racism, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Can we talk about the judge? Because I thought she was really awesome. She yeah. was. So she, uh, I love this judge because literally when they go in for that first motion to exclude the information about the her being Arab background, literally the judge is sitting in her chair looking at both attorneys, rolling her eyes. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> it's just exasperated sigh of, oh, we have to talk to you too. It's, I think, the motto of the law side of this, you know, this series is that whenever you have someone on screen, other than McCoy mm. and his assistant, everybody else is thinking, again with this shit? <laughs> <laughs> That's how the defense attorney was, Charlotte. I loved her. She was badass if her attorney. I wanted her to come back in a million episodes and see her come up against McCoy again and again. She, she was in a couple other She's episodes. She's great. Right? She was awesome. She was, really she was not off. having it. So let's get to the trial then. On the stand, Elaine says that her husband was with her. That's his alibi. She gets angry. What did you have for dinner the night of the 12th? Prime rib. Did you and your husband have wine for dinner that night? I can't do this. You killed your own son. Objection. He was not home with me that evening. And then on redirect, she gets sad, confronted by the, you know, the rattling off of the names of everybody who cheated on him. And then she says, oh, she lied, and he actually was with her. And so the brilliant plan is based on, of course, the woman-to-woman -woman talk, which apparently should never happen again. Right. <laughs> and I'd like to thank Miss Sutherland for reminding me that the bourgeois fantasies about fidelity and marriage are still running rampant in this country. Excuse me? Well, you made me realize. It's easier for a jury to believe that a wife would lie to hurt a scoundrel than lie to protect him. That's perjury. Prove it. Uh, women can't be trusted to talk yeah, to other women. Because she picked up on the idea, she says, that the jury would be, would not believe that... Would, she didn't care about his affairs. Well, yeah, that they would they would believe he would lie. She would lie. Look how confused you are. No, she, she would lie <laughs> to protect uh, a, a murderer, but 
wouldn't lie to protect, protect a cheater. A cheater the other way around? I don't know. All I know is fuck? that for whatever reason, <laughs> the memory of their dinner of prime rib and Cabernet was what sent her over the edge. <laughs> and I was like, why that moment to choose to start lying or not? I don't understand any of it. So was he with her or not with her? Like, I, this was what was so confusing, right? He was not with her. Right. But she was lying when she said he was, and she was double-cross lying when she said he wasn't. Yeah. He really wasn't, but she did a shit sandwich, lie, <laughs> truth, lie, and then said the truth was a lie. Yeah. To lie and then retract the lie Dear would God. seem more like the truth so privileged. Only the white people would get away with this shit, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and where really, is somebody... she was lying about lying about the lie. Well, and where is the judge pulling everybody into her office going, guys, come on, can we just figure this out and get a reliable witness, somebody? <laughs> she was, she's more like, hey, look, we've come this far. You know, there's five minutes left in this episode. Why don't we just... Honey, let's, let's see what the jury does. Let's go home and work the crosswords some more, shall we? <laughs> Why, their marriage sounds fun, huh? <laughs> now, I, I do want to know, how did Dr. Blanchard think he was going to get away with, of all things, infecting his ex-lover with SARS? I mean, if I had an ex-mistress who was a bricklayer and a brick went through my window, I'm not thinking a long time about who's responsible for that. Also, why did he try to kill her? Was that ever clear? Uh, yeah. Oh, there was a paternity thing. But if the paternity was proven, uh, then he's probably on the hook for a lot of money, which they never presented as as a motivation. Right. Well, Very and confusing. not only that, but he also said that he didn't think it would kill her. He was like, "Oh, it'll be like flu symptoms. It's really not that big of a deal. She'll be fine." It's a prank. So why did he do it? Right. <laughs> 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 and infect because, 11 other people i mean yes you know. why did he do like why because he had to risk his total career <laughs> to get back at the one woman who says no to him well he is from hudson he no. is from hudson no sense all right let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode it's time for ripped from the headlines you think you know who did you it you think you know did it but you don't know who did it you don't know who did it rip from the headlines this episode is inspired by the case of dr richard schmidt the louisiana physician had a decade-long affair with a nurse named janice trayan which ended in 1994 six months afterwards trayan was diagnosed with hiv Unsure of how she contracted it, she learned neither her ex-husband or her old boyfriends had the virus. That's when she suspected the doctor, who had given her an injection he said was vitamin B12. Detectives learned the night of the injection, Dr. Schmidt had drawn blood from an AIDS patient, but the vial never made it to the laboratory. Though Schmidt had been their prime suspect, investigators didn't have a way to prove Trayan had been infected with his patient's blood. Scientists conducted a new kind of testing to examine the DNA strands within the virus and compare the two samples. It was the first time a court would consider phylogenetic evidence. Experts declared the virus strands in Trayan and Schmidt's patient were similar. That was good enough for the jury, which convicted the doctor for attempted murder in 1998. Richard Schmidt will be eligible for early release in 2023. <laughs> We're going to back up a minute. SARS is back in the news. Today? Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. China has a pneumonia outbreak that is very reminiscent 
of SARS. Mm. They're saying, no, it's something different. Um, That's comfortting. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, they were criticized about what kind of information they gave out Mm. about the origins of the the outbreak. They say 23 people died. Uh, World Health Organization says 8,000 people died around the world. Wow. Between 2002 and 2004. Hmm. Yeah, this is a respiratory illness. It is easy to catch. Mm. So- Let's go back to the the real life case here. Uh, this is the second time we've done a rip from the headlines where someone used AIDS tainted blood as a weapon. Yeah, you mm-hmm. recall that other Law and Order. Uh, so the doctor was giving her B twelve injections to keep her from getting colds. It was a regular thing that they did. Okay, again, very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, B twelve promotes red blood cells, not white blood cells. So I don't quite get what that regimen is, but he came over late at night Mm. after they broke up and insisted on giving her the injection. And she said, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because, hey, we just broke up. I don't want to deal with you would not have been appropriate. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't want a victim blame, obviously. (laughs) Agreed. However, (laughs) I will say it is a red flag. If the doctor that you were dating and spurned or whatever the end of this relationship was then wanted to come to my house and give me an injection, I'd be like, what a pass. Are you talking about makeup sex? (laughs) No, literally injection? Well, I am feeling a bit run down. (laughs) All right, just swab the little cot down there. Maybe it's just Uh, an easy way to get him out of the house. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Leave. Yeah. You know, in the beginning uh, of her diagnosis, they checked with her husband, you know, anybody that she had, her ex-husband, I should say, anybody that she had dated. Yeah. And nobody had it, including the doctor. Yeah. And so they were at a loss. And then she went, oh, that's right. Oh, no. He came in and I gave me a needle in the arm. Because she worked in a hospital. It was conceivable. She contracted it. Yeah. Accidentally on the job. She also got an injection. In that same injection, there was also blood from a hepatitis C patient. Wow. And she contracted that, too. Oh, poor thing. As of 2016, uh, Janice was still alive. Mm-hmm. At least according to my exhaustive research <laughs> on what has happened to her. She was on uh, HLN Headline News Network. Uh, she was saying she was having health problems related to the hep C part yeah. of her illness. Yeah. This seems like also, I mean, it's a very weird and inefficient way to try to kill somebody in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you would think a doctor. I mean, this is, again, a situation where like he is in contact with and obviously working with AIDS patients and sending their blood to the lab. Mm-hmm. A, direct line from her to him, yeah, right? Yeah. But B, like, he knows that, you know, these these diseases are symptomatic, asymptomatic for long periods of time sometimes, or like different things can happen. It seems inefficient. It really does. It really just seems more efficient to hit somebody with a frying pan. I'm not <laughs> condoning that. The frying pan industry. <laughs> the frying pan lobby is saying, don't say that, Rebecca. It's also one thing to do it to her, but what about the other people that could be infected by it? They didn't do anything to you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This guy's a monster. Seems really. Uh, and he <laughs> could get unfair. out. He could get out soon. Uh, he technically could. Oh, he's not gonna. But I mean, he could get out for good behavior. He has been up for parole, mm. and he continues to extol his uh, innocence. Mm-hmm. So the parole board is not going to release him unless he admits to his guilt and is remorseful about that, et cetera, et cetera. But he did, you know, try to appeal the conviction based on the science. Mm. Because it was novel, mm-hmm. and what they found, they they were able to take partial DNA mm-hmm. 
I'm not, I'm going to really kind of confuse like what how this works, but you can use RNA to you know replicate whole or fill in holes in DNA strands and whatnot. <gasps> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so, I love okay. science. This is just not what this podcast is about. Yeah, okay. Get to the point. <laughs> so they compared uh, Janice's strain. Yes. With the uh, with this from the patient, the right. dead AIDS patient, and also with a bunch of control samples. Right. And the analysis was that the sample between Janice and the patient was closer right. than all the control samples, but not an exact match right. or anything like that. Right. The jury was okay with that, mm-hmm. given the totality of the evidence. Right. That good enough for um, a conviction? I mean, see, this is the whole thing. I mean, in, uh, O.J. Simpson's trial kind of set us up for this, where it comes to the DNA and the science and making sure everybody knows the science. I would be so confused sitting on a jury. I would have no idea. But if it's if it's a matter of she consented to the thing and then he just so happened to put something else in it, then to me, yeah, I would probably be like, yeah, he's probably guilty of injecting her with something that she didn't really want. Yeah, it's still hard to explain away the B12 injection. Right. Yeah, that part's weird. That part's weird. But yeah, I, I, you know, as you know, I am the kind of person who will say, even if someone did it, if the evidence isn't great, like, they probably shouldn't be convicted, right? I wasn't in this trial. I don't know what the totality of the evidence was, but I'm assuming there's probably been some advances in this area since then. And I could imagine that this doctor, if he is proclaiming his innocence, is probably talking about this right mm-hmm. yeah yeah but That's, it's not working <laughs> it's not working he's, he's stuck there he's stuck in prison yeah probably for the best let's be real well that is gonna do it for us <laughs> want to thank our guests samantha thompson sam where can our listeners follow you online oh you can follow me on all the things we're at spooky alex sam on twitter and instagram we're also on facebook spooky adventures of alec and sam and rebecca lavoy how can our listeners follow you uh you can follow me on twitter or instagram at reb lavoy and you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from the great Travis Roy, who will instantly rebuild our server with all of our episodes in a, in a short notice on Christmas Eve. Lily Flynn handles our promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. Get your first month free at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, Go to lawandorderpodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio. It is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.